Welcome to the show. My name is Eric Wright. I am the host for your Disco Posse podcast, and this is going to be a really, really great story-bound episode with the voice, the creator, and the mind behind the visual brand. This is Randy Herbertson. He's a really, really incredible individual, but let's just wait for a second. And speaking of stories, I've got a story to tell you. It's a story about making sure that you protect all the data you got. Because before you get into the podcast, make sure you get yourself over to the fine friends of Veeam Software. i got to give a shout out because they're a huge supporter of the podcast and the community. And I'm really, really seeing a lot of neat stuff they're doing. They've got events coming up. But more than anything, you want to protect your data, whether it's on-premises, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's cloud native. Oh, yeah, you got to back that stuff up, too. Oh, and SaaS... Back that SaaS up. That's right, including Office 365, Microsoft Teams. That stuff is not just automatically backed up because it's in the cloud. In fact, the cloud is just somebody else's computer. That's right. Sorry to break it to you. But the best way you can fix this is go to Veeam, and that is go to vee.am forward slash Posse, and you can find out everything you need. They've got a really cool campaign going right now, so head over there. Go do it. Trust me. I love those guys. vee.am forward slash Posse. Find out more. And speaking of protecting, protect your privacy. How do you do that? Easy. Get ExpressVPN. I use it for a variety of reasons because I travel a bunch, and I don't trust Wi-Fi anywhere. So if you want to protect your data in flight, Great way to do it. Go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash discoposse, and that's the way to do it. Seriously, go do it. Really cool. Absolutely worth it. And speaking of, places where you can get your Wi-Fi sniffed, not when you're using ExpressVPN, of course, but don't go to your local coffee shop. Get your coffee at home. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com, and you can get the most devilishly good coffee around there and the most diabolically awesome swag. Oh, yeah, that's right. Go check it out. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com. There you go. End of the sponsors. Time for the good stuff. This is Randy Herbertson. Randy's really cool. I love this chat. He's just such a, he gets it. He gets it. He gets how to tell stories. So we go through the history of big brands. Oh, what a, you're going to love it. Seriously, I'm actually just excited that you're about to enjoy this episode as much as I did. So this is it. It's Randy Herbertson from the Visual Brand on the Disco Posse Podcast. This is Randy Herbertson. I am the founder and principal of the Visual Brand. And you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. My favorite thing I love, especially when people that your job and your your passion is brand and you know you you nailed it uh, on the first try for you know first of all saying disco posse podcast it's a challenge unto itself uh but as somebody who when i look at the work you've done and your approach to things randy i'm really really excited by the chance to chat today for folks that are brand new to you uh i you you can definitely give your better version of your background than I can. So let's let's do that, Randy. What tell folks about you, the visual brand, and this is going to be fun because I know this is an area that I'm passionate about, and a lot of people come to me regularly. Like, how do I stand out? What are the things I can do, especially in a 
kind of a strange world that we're in, you know, right now and in, in how things are changing in media. Yep. All right. So uh, very quickly, so my background, uh, I traveled all the sort of major arenas of marketing. I, uh, after uh, graduating with business and graphic design degrees, which is a little odd, I realize, uh, I've been sort of in the new product and service world my whole career, but I've done that on the, uh, let's call it the client side or the brand side. I've done it in the media side and the agency, the large agency side. And now for the last 15 years, I've been in the small agency world where I've owned my own businesses. I'm in my second one, uh, now based in Westport, Connecticut. I did uh, the flight from urban commuting early, long before COVID, uh, <laughs> about eight years ago, and decided to uh, move my business uh, to a converted uh, post office that I'm in right now, uh, five minutes from home. So, and found no problem finding clients that are all over the world and employees, fortunately, plenty in the area. So, uh, and the theme again, so for, for my businesses have always been um, sort of a right brain, left brain approach to new products and services. And this is where I think people, they struggle with understanding what it means when you go to, you know, a, a consultancy, an agency, you know, to an outside group to look for help around how to most effectively portray and emote your brand. And I use those that word very strongly, right? It's not just telling, it is emoting. You have to in, infuse the vision, what you your passion in the organization, and have it come out in different medium, right? Whether it's the written word, the, the just the pure print visuals, right. web visuals. Right. It's very difficult for people to look outside of themselves and accept that inbound. But when they do, they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> There's this neat thing that happens when they realize like, you are really good at what you do. Why wouldn't you hire somebody who's really good at helping you to portray this brand outside, right? So that is, you're describing classically, you know, we work with big companies and small companies. And the small company, you're describing it perfectly where the, a founder has come up with an idea and uh, and sometimes the idea is something they don't even know how to do, but they've come up with a great idea. And that's even more problematic because then they have to get someone to do it for them. But typically, again, you know, as any small business person knows, you have to be the jack of all trades. But the reality is that, you know, you should be focused on what you make or what you, you know, what you, what you provide and not try to do things you don't do. So, that's again, and one part of it where where we come in. But to take further what you were saying before, you know, we have a strong belief that you know your, as we call it, your brand foundation goes beyond, you know, your communication. It also goes to everything. It goes to your product form or the way you, you know, articulate your service, the way you execute what you do. Every part of the whole process, from the customer service first gateway to the end, the whole thing. And the brands that we look at that are so successful have thought about that, that every touch point of the experience carries a consistent sort of theme or personality. Um, and, and again, a lot of times that happens intuitively and sometimes you go, hmm, everything is great about, I love this product, but something's just not working. Oh, they're really rude when they, when they, when they communicate with me. Oh, I get it in a weird box that doesn't seem to match the luxury element of the product or you know all sorts of things or they they have a website that you know 
that um, is really aggressive, and this is supposed to be for something soft and gentle. So you know, there there's all sorts of ways that that has to come together. And so that again, you know, we um, like I said, we call it a brand foundation. Is something that we is a starting point for almost every innovation project that we do, um, even where you know a client doesn't even understand that it's needed until we kind of communicate what it is. Um, and the nice thing about that, once you have it and it's a living, breathing document, uh, it's used literally every day. You know, we would utilize it as we're going through the full process of whatever we're assigned to do with them. But then they really becomes a little of their primer for going forward. Yeah, you know, right down to what's your brand vocabulary, which is really your communication code. You know, what is your tone and manner? Like you said, what are your emotional and functional drivers? Um, you know, we, you know, and I, again, frankly, I've thought about this for so long. Uh, literally, when we create this, it's like literally 12 pages. It's not a you know 89, 90 page document with a lot of complicated metaphors, uh, and uh, we find it works. And again, it makes our job easier, and it makes the client's job easier as well to frankly communicate to us what they're after. The thing that we've learned, luckily, I think, over the especially the last say twenty years, the the marriage of behavioral psychology into business in how we saw what, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Avis Tversky ultimately gave us with thinking fast and slow and understanding behavioral economics. When two, you know, behavioral psychologists won a Nobel Prize for economics, it we realized that the industries aren't actually separated. The genres aren't distinct and diverse, you know, away from each other. And now the same thing with brand, it's not just, you know, you can't just say, does it look good or does it have the right font? It's what, what's the, what are you trying to achieve when somebody opens this box, they receive your phone call. Like you said, it's user experience, especially now that we know it's critical in the flow of how people get to your website, how they sign up to get a demo, what's their call, like all this crazy stuff that we do. It seems like throwaway things sometimes, but as I say, user experience, no one knows good user experience, but you very quickly know bad user experience. Like good user experience is like a painted room. When it's done right, when you paint a whole room and then someone walks in after you've painted it, they say, okay, looks good. Right. Like, But if they walked in halfway through, they'd be like, whew, you got a long way to go. It's like, it's immediately obvious that you're doing this thing, but when it's done, it just feels right. <laughs> That's right. Or, and again, it, where it often happens when you say something isn't right. Right. You know, when, where, you know, you say, yeah, there's so many things I like about this experience, whether it's a product experience or a service experience, but something isn't working. That's the part where, you know, you need, you need to think about it, you know, and, and, and truth, like I said, when constructed correctly, when you know, kind of what your personality should be, what your most important uh, drivers are, then you utilize it. You know, we, you know, that, and that's also, yeah, Franklin, we do it, like to keep it very simple. So it's easy for you to communicate to others to do it that way as well. So, you know, so like you said, if, you know, one of your, interestingly, we um, had a cosmetic client that uh, a, a very important driver was fun, which is kind of a weird word in the cosmetic world, honestly. And that became a very, really critical part of literally even creating product for them. 
um, but fun in the way that they interpreted it, not like, you know, boisterous fun necessarily. But um, so those kind of things are, are important because again, that's also frankly makes makes your life simpler. But, you know, when you read, you know, reviews of companies, a lot of times what people, when negative reviews comes down, oh, I expected this because you communicated some way this, but I got this. And right. that that disconnect is the place where you go, okay, so what, how do we not stay true to who we are in that way? Where, where did it fall down? You know, and then, and then you try to fix it. Yeah. And I'll say the, the example I always love to give is, you know, you watch a commercial and it shows like people dancing in a field and they, they go through this whole thing and, you know, they show somebody, you know, laying on a beach and holding a, a drink and smiling and laughing and hugging. And then it says, you know, you know, Olendra. And you're like, you know, contact your physician. Like, I have no idea what this thing is supposed to do, but I, like, there's no connection to yeah. it. And they don't mention it because it's probably a host of disclaimers, but like, I, I'm completely lost. Well, <laughs> you, you hit one of my pet peeves, and this is uh, my, my dislike of, uh, uh, you know, focusing on what kind of word you want, is that there's lots of great cinematography down out there uh, that has nothing to do with selling a product or service. That, you know, it's gorgeous, it's emotive, it's beautiful. At the end of the day, does it make you feel better about the brand? You don't remember what it is? I'm not so sure. So the really genius communication work <clears throat> brings those two things together. That you hit a core element of who you are as a brand and you, it doesn't mean you can't use associative things, you can, but if they're so far afield, how does that help you, you know? Same thing, I remember a, uh, an agency that I worked with did this beautiful, beautiful work for Bank. Uh, and they made this whole thing about a mother reading a story to a child. And it was a beautiful, gorgeous thing. At the end, it said XX Bank. And the yeah, of course, recall was really low. I mean, it won all sorts of awards, but uh, like, what did it have to do with the bank? You know, and of course the agency said, oh, it's the soft and warm touch you have with your clients. The truth is you're asking that consumer to go a big stretch to go from mom reading a book to bank experience because you told me nothing about the bank experience. So, yeah, it's this is always the I think another thing that people get concerned about when they look to go outside is they sometimes worry that the person creating the asset like the the outcome is looking for like they're looking to win an emmy for a commercial not to really truly connect the brands to customers there's an unfortunate thing where we've seen you know things that made like we and sometimes it works like of course I'll, I'll call it out i i we mentioned i'm not going to mention you know competitors but i call it you know, sort of the famous chiat day you know the the 1984 throwing a, a you know a hammer at the screen right. it had nothing to do with what was there however steve jobs was like perfect i want he was like ed wood you know it's just like they're like this is completely wrong he says exactly <laughs> and it worked in a weird way but today yeah. we we've people think that that's what's going to happen. They're going to end up with a cologne ad, you know, type of completely discounted thing to be visually appealing. And they fear that you can't understand my brand as well as I can, because I literally created it. And it's this unfortunate control feeling that a lot of founders have where they're afraid to 
Like have somebody else tell them what they actually feel about the brand when you tell them it's, uh, I'm mean, sorry, I, yeah. I know this all too well as I, I approach people all the time when I do advisory and there's a real sense that like no one can know me as well as me. Like actually that's not the case. <laughs> well, you know, the truth is what we find is it's unlocking what that me is. So it doesn't mean we're inventing it for the product or service necessarily, unless they literally have no idea and you have to come up with something. But usually it's there in some way. You just have to unlock it. So the problem usually for the founder is just being able to, unable to articulate it. Yeah, and finding that way to articulate is, is, is critical. And again, sometimes it's a little bit of a trial and error kind of situation. Uh, but where it's successful, ultimately they go, oh yeah, that's it. You know, so it's like it literally it's like I said, it's not a black box thing saying, here's the grand reveal. Here's who you are. Here's who you want to be. And they go, OK, great. I never thought of that. It should go. Oh, that that feels right. You know, that feels like what I'm at or gosh, I've never been able to articulate that um, in, in the same way. It, it also what I want to ask you, Randy, is like over the course of time, what you found to be the testing process. Right. This is not like. Four people will interview you for two hours, then they go away and two weeks later, they hand you your your press kit, your brand kit, whatever. Like that's not how it works. There's a real interactive continuous process. So maybe walk folks through what you found to be a successful method in going from, I need help with my brand to people right. saying, okay, it's working now. So to, to your point, the I would say the less successful or less effective ones, this woman says, says okay, <clears throat> go do this for me, come back when it's done, present it to me, great, da-da-da. In those situations, nine times out of ten, they don't actually use it. They don't actually follow it. Uh, uh, when we try to do any continued work creatively against it, they go, hmm, okay, because they haven't really uh, taken ownership of it. So in the best situation is finding that perfect balance where they're a part of the process, okay? And look, at for everybody, that level of time commitment is different. Um, and obviously, thank you, with virtual platforms, that's become a little easier uh, than it used to be because it doesn't mean we have to go to you or you have to come to us every time we do that. Um, you know, we always do, a, a, of course, a lot of internal work, even behind the scenes, but, you know, that ownership piece is really, really critical. So the way we typically try to do it is do it in stages <clears throat> and where we can literally do a little bit of work, do a little check-in. And because the work is iterative, it's a building block. Okay. So we go to the next stage. We can say, okay, so look, we all agreed you were part of this and they go, yes, that's familiar. And then we, how do we get to, to, to the next stage? Because, you know, frankly, the biggest challenge, um, a consultant or an agency has is getting the right kind of direction from the client. Not that at one end, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. Right. Saying, you know, I just want it to be read. Please just make it read. And, you know, our answers to both is why. Why is our most important word? So if you want it to be read, why is read important? Well, because it's always been read. So what is that trying to tell people? Why is it not saying it's wrong? So as, as, as creative people, we want to understand not just the direction, we want to understand you know, why we're doing it that way. And it doesn't mean we're going to do something different. We just need to understand it. You know, Because I always say we can either give you exactly what you asked for 
or what we recommend. You probably are paying us for what we recommend, but we want what we recommend to be you know, in line with what you want. And the, and the other part where they say, I, it just doesn't feel right. I always say, give me some adjectives, okay? Is it too much of this? Is it too little of that? Because again, when you speak to us in adjectives, we can start painting a picture to get to the right place. You know, so that is our get our, our biggest challenge. And the one thing our brand foundation work tries to get at, but even without it, that is the thing that we we you always work at trying trying to get. You know, because I said clients end up on one end or the other, where they give you no direction at all, and either are are happy or decided or give you too much direction. <laughs> yeah, the in you end up with this thing of like, I don't know, it feels like it needs more pop. Uh, you know, like what, uh, describe exactly what it is that you're after. And the color thing is, you know, as you said, it's not even that you're saying it's right or wrong. It's tell me what the background is to what made you decide that that's important, right? What makes this valuable to you and in, in how you portray your brand or your, your company and it can be like, so I, I like yellow. My daughter, it's her favorite color. Oh, okay, right, it's great. Like, let's take, are you trying to be, you know, the ideal psychological color to draw people in, to make them feel calm? Like, no, my daughter likes yellow. Like, perfect, that, that's a boundary. We'll work within that. Right? Well, but even there you say, so how does that make her feel? And right. how does that feeling translate to you? Makes her feel safe. Great. So is feeling safe, is the safety, is security, is that part of what you want to communicate? Then you're getting somewhere. You know, then you're, you're, you're getting a place that you can work with um, versus just simply saying it's the color that I like. Because frankly, even with anything, particularly with color or things, it's not a non-emotional response. We always have an emotional response to color in some way, whether we recognize it or not. And obviously, color is just one element. Um, but uh, but that is, like you said early on, uh, the emotional response is important. Look at that also, we also have functional drivers. There are functional things that, that brands and services need to do, you know, that are not necessarily emotional. Um, but uh, both have to sort of work together. And when it comes to portraying the customer as part of their brand, like you said, we you know we could show these things, and they they may look visually fantastic, but if it doesn't actually connect you to the what the customers either currently experiencing or will experience as a result of engaging with this company or product, that that's why it's so important. And even you know, we say like the a thing can be fantastic, right? This is an amazing you know an amazing bottle. I love this bottle. It fits beautifully into my cupboard. Whatever the reason is, but if it wasn't water that I liked to drink, it wouldn't matter that the bottle fits perfectly in my cupboard. Right. It is truly matching all of these requirements. And the most important one being, I really like the water. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is okay. And sometimes, wow, I really like the water, but it's so hard. It doesn't fit anywhere. I can't open the top. So you know what? I'll find another water. You know, so that functionally you 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 follow it, or oh god, I love the idea of that. I love being seen holding that. It's very cool, but honestly, it's such uh, so difficult. I have so many obstacles to get there that I uh, uh, I don't want to continue. It's funny we we do a fair amount of work in industrial design and packaging as well, and um, we've recently worked on two clients at two ends of the spectrum. One that very much about meticulous detail and ceremony and all that kind of stuff. And so when we were doing the packaging. 
you know, I always think packages should sort of open like a present in some way, should have some kind of ritual. Uh, for the one end, it had, let's just say, a lot of layers. You had some elements to get to and storytelling that unfolded and it completely fit the product. For the other product, it was really all about efficiency and time saving. So it had to be as simple as possible. So I'd say, yeah. to me, okay, this is the opposite. So no layers, don't make, <laughs> you know, don't, don't make it an origami opening or blah, blah, blah. Got to make it so kind of ingeniously simple. And it was funny what we ended up with, it, it did exactly that. So basically when you open the packet, the, the packet, the, the product basically popped out at you in a way without falling in your lap. Um, but that fit what that user expected, which was, I want to get there in two seconds because this is a fast, efficient product. So that's again about just really paying attention to your full product experience. And another one, I, I'll, I'll use an example and I pardon, I, I'm going to pick a specific brand just because it's it's interesting where the brand is actually completely opposite to the product. However, it's part of their choice. And, and there's a company called Liquid Death and they make water. It's right. flat water and sparkling water. Right. It comes in cans that have like a devil's face on it. They look like it's like a energy drink or a, a, a 17% beer. And their whole thing is murder your thirst and all this stuff. And in the end, it's, it's literally water. But they specifically said, we're going to create this, this crazy brand, like the Red Bull of water. Right. And so it's almost like, at the antithesis of the actual product, but in this case, it's actually working out well for them. So I'm, I'm curious, Randy, when you see also, where does that work where you can have these almost like a dichotomy in the presentation, but yet it gets you to a place where you're like, oh, cool. I, I dig this as a, I dig this product because I dig their branding. So it's actually great. And I actually love what I would call paradoxes or juxtapositions, uh, that is okay. You know, cause sometimes you need just that. We have a, a brand or new brand we're working right now where our overarching theme is what we're calling modern nostalgia. So to offset as the, the spectrum, <laughs> this particular brand, there's a nostalgia element that's really important, but you know, for the audience we're reaching, we don't want to look old. Okay. In fact, we have to be sort of nostalgic cast in a new way. And, and so th those juxtapositions can work. The only thing I would tell you is sometimes, like the example you said, it can get gimmicky. It can be clever. And yes, it's great to draw somebody in, but at the end of the day, you go say, all right, I'm selling water. I might keep wanting to say that if I don't like the water and it's not something that's affordable, accessible, I'll probably will say, yeah, it was clever and cool, but I'm not gonna keep doing it. You right. know, but if it still passes all those other elements, you brought them in through the cleverness and you kept them, which is great. Because bringing them in is, of course, if you can't do that, you, you can't get them to stay. So that's the key. The key is, though, it isn't, you don't live only on that. Because, again, there are plenty of brands out there that have great wrappings, right? All sorts that are funny, they're cool, blah, blah, blah. But then when you get inside, you go, mm, okay. The wrapping was great. The inside was, mm, okay. So if, if the inside doesn't also pay off, then you're not going to keep them. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> as another famous um, I, I, I actually don't even know who did their their branding on it. Was, of course, it's Buckley's mixture. If you know that one, then they're it. It was it. It's awful stuff, right? And eventually, they they just changed the let's embrace it, and their their slogan became "It tastes awful, but it works." Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but it works is all right. 
So what they're doing, which is clever there, is they're saying, you know what, you're going to have an obstacle here. It's going to have an obstacle. But at the end of the day, it's going to be worth it. Okay. And if that's okay, you know, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, a uh, famous uh, German liquor brand did this where, again, they taste absolutely atrocious. It's really an aperitif, actually. But they embraced it completely and made it part of their thing. But the other day, it was high alcohol. That's why people were drinking it. Okay. So the truth is. But, uh, but they embrace the the fact that you're going to hate drinking it. It's not a drinking experience. It's going to be enjoyable. <laughs> so, and, and so that's okay. But again, there's still at the end something that says it was worth doing for whatever reason I've chosen to do it. If that part doesn't work, that's where it, it falls off the cliff. You know, I, it's funny. I worked early in my career actually um, for a brand that was really what let's call a uh, popular price sort of discount brand. Uh, but very popular, and but their chosen communication was very upscale and aspirational and beautiful, and again, it won awards and all that kind of stuff. But people just really dis disconnect. They said, you know, I see these beautiful, gorgeous scenes and all these things, and then I I basically find it at Walmart for two ninety nine. So <laughs> where do those two connect? I don't understand what I'm supposed to so. Uh, long short of it, that, that um, they finally said, stop spending a million dollars for this production, this commercial. Not that we have to be downscale, but let's meet our customer where they're buying our product. And let's be more communicated about that level. Yeah, you if you don't want to pay Kendall Jenner to stand outside of a Dollarama and put it on Instagram, like it's it's yeah. not going to connect the customer to the, the actual emotive experience that they're going to have and the reason why they've chosen the brand. You know, again, each completely right. Target audience, fantastic. Target influencer, obviously delivers, you know, in has proven to deliver in some cases, but you just can't just mush them together and, and have it automatically work, right? Right, absolutely. Now in the... In the discovery process, and that's why I'd love to have you walk a bit further into Randy, like when you're tapping somebody to like, well, let's whittle it down to the simplest words. So like, what's that process look like as you first sort of sit down in the room and said, you know, what, what do we want to come out of this room with right. and how far are we going to get here today? And, and what does that process look like? So we, we start with, what is classically called drivers, uh, motivational drivers. And there's not a magic number, but it's often three, emotional and three functional. Uh, it's one of the hardest things that we do because again, they have to be distinct, they have to be relevant, and they have to be easy to understand. So, you know, even when we come up with words going, I always say, if you have to explain it in more than a sentence, then it doesn't work. It has to be very, very simple. Uh, so that's that's the real the starting point. And then we, we usually take that into a, um, you know, then take those drivers and model them against consumer profiles that we either know we're going to be there or may be there. Now, again, qualitative testing can absolutely, depending on the brand, be in there, you know, and we will. Uh, and frankly, it's funny. We've done qualitative testing on Zoom and other platforms for many years because you get way better people and they're not sitting in a focus group facility and it's cheaper and faster everything else. So sometimes that process happens. Um, but, you know, regardless of whether that part happens, the those drivers then putting them into consumer segments tells us a lot. Sometimes we have to back out of the consumer segments and go, you know what, we thought this was a driver, but it's not fitting anywhere. 
It just sort of, it's not unique, it's not distinct, so we have to go backwards, but there's still a direct connection. Uh, so that that's another critical step. And then we take from there, um, we uh, then have a really good idea after doing that, understanding how it fits in context with our, our, our who, or whoever our segments, it could be consumer, it could be business segments. Um, and then we build a personality. And the, the personality, we do a personality ladder, which again starts with attributes of who you are, just elements that describe what you are, and then go through emotional and functional articulation, and then the personality words. And what I like about that is that, you know, agencies are saying, here's your brand personality, and you go, all right, so why am I confident? Where did that come from? So the personality letter lets you show, oh, so this is where it came from. Oh, I understand, started from here, you know. Um, you know, and so that's the purpose of that. Um, and so again, that's just sort of the, the starting gate. Um, the funny last piece, and again, I, a lot of we build this off of classical models, the old what is for become statement, which is uh, always hard to write, is usually what comes next, where how do we in basically, you know, one little bit long sentence describe everything about who we are. So we had to say the old elevator speech, describe who you are, we are this, for this, because this, you know, uh, and uh, that statement you know, happens next. So, uh, so again, these are all sort of iterative, and uh, where we, we go from there is into literally building what we call uh, brand vocabulary, which are what are the words that you use consistently or should use consistently, and these aren't necessarily invented words; they're words that are in common lexicon but the words that you may use frequently because they connect to your drivers, because they speak to your audience. And from a digital world, yes, it's great to have contextual, consistent words. It's great for SEO, blah, blah, blah. But more importantly, when your customer or consumer starts seeing these words from you, it's a shorthand of saying, this is what I mean. So when I say this word, it has a very specific meaning because you've you know, just like when you talk to anybody, everybody has their own turns of phrases and you start to know what they mean when they say that, it's the same thing for a brand. So uh, yeah, so that that's sort of the, the, the nutshell. There's a few other elements, but that's a nutshell of the process. Um, and the great part of all of that is that once you've gotten to that point, building that out as a, a creative articulation or creative platform is easier. And now you have words and adjectives and context and understanding that then can lead you to how your visual expression uh, will come to life. And frankly, which of course always has the subjectivity to it, as you're in dialogue with your client on that, you come to a meaning and an understanding of what certain things mean. So if let's say one of the things in there is romantic. So for the context of a brand or a client's point of view, that might mean one thing. And we may say something else and we have to come to a joining point where we both say, yeah, that's what that word means for us, for this brand. The thing that I want to hone in on too and is the the specific words that we we get hung on, but it's important that we have to, like you said, get that foundation there because it often leads to, you know, people say, what is your, what does your product do? Like, oh, it makes, you know, let's just say makes applications faster. You're like, okay, cool. So everything you do makes something faster. Like, well, sometimes it stops it from failing. Okay. So it's not just about faster. It's faster while reducing risk. We're like, okay, but we're getting warm. Like, and then the words that you can do in this, does it make it, cheaper more expensive like what 
once you effectively build sort of the the fences around what it does and what it doesn't do, then it gives you the freedom. Like you said, you are free to take that base, that foundation, and then words will always they have to come back to that core. But it's, it's very easy without the consistency of those words that, you know, one salesperson will describe it as we make your stuff go fast. One person will say we make your stuff go faster. And some people say we make sure we stop your stuff from being slow. They may all mean exactly the same thing and talk about the same product, but the inconsistency of the message, it's it's framing as well. Like it's the reason we chose faster versus fast. Right. There's a, a framing element to it. There's a lot of stuff buried in the choice of word. And if you don't have that at the start, then you can't walk around and said, I don't understand why my sales folks don't get more meetings or don't close more deals. And you right. realize like, cause I've had, I've been on seven sales calls and it sounds like seven different products. <laughs> that's exactly right. And look at that's yet another voice of, of, you know, the brand that has to be consistent. And by the way, they also, it also has to a, be understandable for that salesperson um, and meaningful to sell with. And, and it really all comes down to point of difference. You know, because like any brand will have parity with other brands in some ways, but it's the old one plus one equals three. The way we put our pieces together provides unique opportunity, which could be any, you know, element of the marketing mix that, that helps them do that. Or that we do the same way, but somehow we do just incrementally a little bit better. You know, you know, and if, as you're talking earlier, one of the things that comes to mind, too, is sometimes choosing certain words very carefully and not promising or over-promising um, on your brand. So for instance, uh, we've worked recently on some food products that are, I wouldn't call them health food products, but they're way better for you than the alternative, okay? Right. Yeah. Healthier so, options, right? <laughs> they're healthier, healthier. Yeah. So it's not, this is a healthy product, that's kind of overselling, okay? Truth is, it's not as bad for you as the alternative, which is completely unhealthy, but you don't want to say it's a health product because it's not okay it's healthier okay or better for you so all that is a true statement so again back to the the out end user they'll get the idea that you're not saying oh this is a health food product and i'm gonna like blah, blah. but it does say you know what i'm making this choice because it's better than the alternative but by the way it doesn't make me sacrifice taste or whatever else so but so that being really honest you know and not over promising it's also really, really important. So like to your earlier point, you can't say we're the fastest product on the market. Okay. If that's actually true, yay, scream it off the rooftops. But the ruse is, is that we are going to make things faster is probably an easier and more believable sell. It, another one that I'll, I, I, this word is really one that people use very often. And I find it gets lost because it's a dangerous thing. And I got taught this lesson by the founder of, of the company I'm, I'm at, actually. We used to say, like, we're doing this, we solve it, we're, we're, we're unique in the way we do with it, or it's a unique product. And because it was, it was, it was patented, it was differentiated from other things. But there's a difference between saying differentiated and unique. And he would listen to people tell this thing, and then he would say, I, I want to stop you for a second. When... You were, did you have a lot of friends when you were young? And it was this funny story he would walk people through and you could watch it I mean, after a while. I would see he uses the same sort of shtick all the time. He said, do you have a lot of friends when you were a kid? And you're like, oh yeah. I said, did, you know, do you have a lot of friends now? Yep. Did, 
was it because you were unique? Like, well, I know, uh, like, so it was unique. The thing that made it important that you have friends like, no. Okay. So when we look at what we do and what our product does, does unique matter to the customer or does what we do matter to the customer? Right. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> it yeah. suddenly hits them. You're like, but yeah. you, you throw this word and it's very easy to put these words in and he's like, it, it doesn't actually move the value by using this word. Yeah. Yeah. Different for different sake, they say, isn't a selling point, you know? Uh, and, and look at difference in a, in a, in a sea of where there's a same obstacle in every other thing in your category and you've solved that obstacle. Great. That is your right. point of difference. But like I said earlier, it's a lot of, it's the, it's the combination that makes it different that you are, you know, uh, you provide this at parity as good as everybody else. Uh, you do this in a little bit different way, but you're less expensive. Okay, so mm, you so you reduce the barrier, so you're not getting anything less, you're paying a little less. Or you're paying a little more, but you're getting these other things that you wouldn't otherwise that are meaningful to you. Now, sometimes too, frankly, it's the old classic gilding the lily. You'll say, okay, this is more expensive, so we're going to add all this gilding there that you don't really care about, okay? Yeah. It's going to make it look more expensive, right? Look at, okay, so you put it in a fancier box, but it's the same product. Why will I pay more just for a fancier box? I don't eat the box, you know? I eat what's inside. So it, it, it's just, uh, you know, realizing what things are going to be meaningful to the end user. It's interesting when you bring this up. Where does pricing come in in the discussions around creating a brand element and, and, a, and a visual brand? So it, that's really interesting because again, uh, price and in, in, in any, any category is something that always comes into play because ultimately when you're creating a product or a service, you say, oh, I want to do this and this and this and this and this and then you, you go, oh my God, sticker shock. That's going to cost us so much. We're either going to make no money or have to be really expensive. So you then start curating what you can do. Um, the reality is that uh, price can be, you know, can be a, an obstacle in different ways. You can actually be too cheap. And people will say, I don't trust this because it's not expensive enough. I mean, I know I do this myself. I'll look for something that I want to buy on Amazon or wherever I go, you know, I'm not going to buy the cheapest one because it may sound good, but it's way cheaper. I'll go somewhere in the middle, right? But um, the, the reality is that price is, is important. And look, at it, it's okay sometimes to have a higher price if it is justifiable. But again, that will also weigh on increments. If this is something I use all the time, a really significantly higher price is going to have to have a huge benefit for me to do this. If it's something I use less frequently, yeah, maybe I'll, 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 I'll justify it, right? But it's just one of those, you know, consideration of barriers. But uh, the reality is that, you know, it's also understanding what that classic price sensitivity area is. Being 10 cents more may not make a difference, okay? Being $10 more might, okay? Um, yeah. And it all depends on, on your expectation. So, you know, a lot of times, particularly with, with newer companies, they end up just wanting so much in there that they say, oh, we're going to make no money for the first two years uh, because we just want all this in there. And then they realize after two years, okay, they love what we have. We can't make it any higher price and we don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> 
eventually our you know our investors are going to stop investing us because we're in a you know in a no-win situation here so they and then they learn either we have to cut a few things away that we realize we love but they're that important that allows us to make a little margin or maybe we need experience can we go up a little bit in price and still maintain what we've got so you know price is a really critical thing i would say rarely is it the only driver and that's you're dealing with something that is purely commodity and then it doesn't matter uh but uh but it's just where it fits into the uh, overall mix the thing that often you know it in the the way that you can tell that story can be simple and effective you know a little more a lot better you know whatever like some some sort of tagline type of thing that often right immediately pushes like we understand we're a little bit more than the alternative right but let's talk about what you really want to get out of you know why people use us and then that's the other thing is introducing peer validation and you know like this the proof points right when when you're looking especially when a customer is or sorry a company is very early in their brand and they don't have proof points i'm curious randy how do you how do you see that story when it's not there yet so i mean to your point one of the things you just said some kinds of testimonials are important <laughs> if you can get someone saying whether it could be an expert it could be an even advisor, ultimately it should be an end user that gives some kind of validation that what you're saying is not just you saying it, but that it that it's real. Uh, that's really important. Um, you know, all, it's funny on the flip side, I was thinking earlier that, that one of the things that a lot of times pays huge value when you're in a different situation is we call the brand mantle, right? So certain brands just have added value for you, right? So I know it's from this brand. It's interesting. I bought an outdoor uh, grill this summer for a, a new patio. And I ended up buying a brand that was actually was funny. It was pretty inexpensive, but it was a brand I totally loved and was as aspirational to me. So I took the leap saying, you know, it's on the inexpensive sides. I'm, I'm, that makes me concerned, but it's from this brand. So I feel okay. Now, yeah. fortunately it turned out okay, but that brand mantle did have an added value for me. You know, now it can go both ways. You can have a brand mantle that says, they only do inexpensive things. They do them really well. And so buying a luxury product may not work, but it might. So it's it's understanding where that trust mantle is. And so look, at that's why companies put millions of dollars on their balance sheet for what they call goodwill. You know, brand goodwill has a huge amount of value for the customer. And again, like you said, in a place where you don't have it yet, you just know that is important to build. Because if you don't build that, then it's all just on your product and then it also becomes commodity and easy to knock off you know the uh, uh, another thing that's interesting is that when people become so they there's like i'm gonna buy this thing no matter what right i, I really dig this brand and i and often i i just I, I don't want the packaging i don't want the frills i'm like look i i get it i'm gonna buy this anyways and my my thing that was funny is uh, when i lived in vancouver and there was this amazing, you know, coffee shop there, and they did fantastic artisanal coffee. And it's gentlemen with handlebar mustaches, and they're they're doing the little latte art, and they're like drawing the this, you know, the face of of Jesus in your in your latte. And at one point, I'm like, dude, I got to get to a meeting. You don't need to do the heart 
like you don't need to do that. just like literally pour it in the cup. Wait. But they're like, no, this is part of our experience. Like they will not let it go out the door right. unless it's right. You know, and said, then the funny thing is you're going to take a plastic lid and you're going to mush it on top. Yeah. And what started off as this beautiful heart will come out the other side looking like it was shot out of a cannon. Right. <laughs> right. But again, honestly, that's where you make the choice. If I need a fast cup of coffee, I'm going to go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. If I right. really want to you know, reward myself, I'm going to go here. So they're, they're making a brand decision there too. And again, you know, good or better and different, that's that that that's a choice. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, in choosing something that is, you know, based on the time you have to do it. In other ones, you say, I'm going to spend a little more time. So, you know, example for me is that um, we buy uh, uh, some home, you know, meal services where they – you, you get the box and you have to make it at home. So we started with one that nothing was pre-prepared at all and uh, also was pretty indulgent. So that was a concern. So we had landed on another one, which was like the perfect mix. Things are semi-prepared, meaning they give you half of a vegetable that's already cored and they do this yeah. thing. It's packaged in paper, so it's not, it's sustainable. But so it takes us instead of 40 minutes to make dinner, it takes 20, but it's kind of fun that it takes 20. I do a little bit of chopping and a little bit of this, and I'm not just getting everything already ready to put it into like a microwave. So it's finding that balance, you know, and 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 what the customer will pay for. Another thing that interesting, like now that I think about Vancouver, was a classic case where the brand itself and the product itself, almost like we talked about this juxtaposition, can be sort of disconnected. There's a, a company that people may know is called Boston Pizza. What they may not know is that Boston Pizza is headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And if you, anything, you know that Boston is not famous at all for pizza. Yet, somehow, a very strong and, and well-adored brand. But all of it, just none of it actually maps out <laughs> in the end. And, they, you know, at one point, they could just get bought by Nestle or some other company. Right, right. Even the original brand's may not survive the life of the company because of the way the financials work. But when you get that kind of a situation, Randy, like how often do you see that? And and how do you how do you position it when they're again these sort of like juxtapositions of things, but in the end you just have to create the experience for the customer. So it 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 what you're sort of articulating is ultimately would be the brand story, right? So the, the reality is that having a brand story is important, okay? Uh, but even how you get there is okay. The reason that they're Boston Pizza and they're from Vancouver, there's a story behind that, yeah. okay? And as long as that story is articulated, not like, oh, we're pretending to be in Boston and we're just not going to let you know that it's not really true, then that's artificial. But the truth is there's going to be a brand story uh, behind there, and that's what's important. You know, we, you know, this is, Similar example, we worked with a very large beer company and they uh, craft beer is exploding and everything like that. And they actually uh, did a lot of beer production in Mexico. Um, and they said, hmm, but craft beer all seems to be in the U.S. It's all Seattle and Boulder and blah, blah, blah. And we discovered in, in a process that, you know what, as long as it has a story and authenticity, it can be from anywhere. It can be yeah. from anywhere. So not every Mexican beer is cheap and, you know, just about the beach. It can have a story and, and, and really hardcore uh, 
craft beer lovers got it and they understood it. So it's, and, and frankly, we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't done some some consumer work to, to really unveil that because we wouldn't have believed it if we said it. So that brand story is really important. Just again, whatever it is, you know, frankly, people find it really interesting, you know, when people who, have, it doesn't mean you had to grow up always doing this or aspiring to do this. You could have a turning point in your life where you said, I had a passion for this or I had a problem I had to solve. And so I did it. I solved it. Okay. That's going to be interesting to people. They don't care that, oh, you grew up your whole life wanting to make shoelace. Yeah. Uh, that's not, <laughs> doesn't matter, you know? Uh, it, it, the fact that you figured out at some point that either based on a problem you had or an inspiration you have is kind of cool. And frankly, people will relate to that. There is another thing that I, you know, you talked before about healthy, healthier. This gets into an interesting area that people don't always get. And it's, uh, I know, of course, the phrase we, we, we use is called puffery, right? When we use specific phrases to describe a product. So it's like we'd say, you know, 20% better than the competitor. Like there are legal ramifications to the statements that we make. And when we say stuff like organic, you know, organically sourced, uh, you know, made in, you know, manufactured in the United States or like what Apple does this right. They say designed in Cupertino. Right. Well, that's great, but it was manufactured in a factory in China. But it doesn't say that in the product. It says designed in Cupertino, like because that's there's a specific phrase, and that's the limit. Like they, it is legitimately designed in Cupertino. They can legally say that. But when we get to those things like better, faster, fastest, what are the what are the kind of rules around that stuff, Randy? So. And you pointed out some of them there are absolutely regulatory. So if you work in the pharmaceutical or the liquor or, or spirits or alcohol beverage, they're very specific. You can and can't say. Okay. Even in the food business, the word organic isn't just allowed to say for anything if you're not truly organic. And there are also all a bunch of other certifications you can or can't have. Um, and so you have to be very um, in those instances specific. And it's funny. Uh, particularly in the first two categories I mentioned, you end up hearing a lot of nuances <laughs> where yeah. they directly say this, but they're meaning this and the customer finally kind of figures out that's what it means, but they can't say it. Um, the other time is when things are like all the same. Organic's a perfect example. Everybody don't, they don't believe that anymore because everybody's organic. And, and frankly, even not everybody has a good job of explaining why is organic important? And so really smart companies have figured out a way to, if they're, that's an important claim, explain why it's important. You know, what part of that is, is really meaningful to you as an end customer by saying that it's organic. Um, but it, it, it's always, it's recognizing what are those things that are really going to matter to the end customer that are saying. Just because it's important to us, is it going to be important to them? Okay. Uh, at, at the end, you know, we have a, a, another client that has uh, uh, has an EU certification for, uh, you know, traceability back to the roots of every bit of their product and their product actually is not a food product. So it's kind of interesting, really important to them. And one of the things that, you know, that's relatively new client we're going to sort of learn is, is that important to the end user? You know, and the reality is it could very well be. It could be, right. wow, 
that's a huge point of difference and everybody else and they're uh, will mistrust other products because they're not traceable. So, uh, but it's understanding and, you know, ultimately seeing where the, the end consumer uh, falls on that. And I guess that really w- would come through sort of the testing. There's a, a restaurant that I've been to. It's in a couple of locations. And their big thing is effectively kind of like the 100-mile diet. Uh, they use 100-mile sourcing. And so they will they actually draw a map on a chalkboard. And it has a little, a little chalk mark. And it says tomatoes from this place. And like a little – so you see the regional map. Again – most people that walk in there may not even matter, but to a lot of folks, you know, they can say that's that's a factor that they bring in. I like supporting a local economy, and that's a, a feel good. That maybe their their burger probably doesn't taste better than any other burger, but I this is a factor to me that makes me move towards this brand. So I'll give you an angle there, which is sort of interesting that a lot of companies don't speak to on that, but it's really the root of that which is reducing carbon footprint. Right. So the reality is buying in a local sourcing, yes, it's great to support the local economy, but the real roots of that was I'm not driving my tomatoes a thousand miles to get here, or I'm not buying that I drive, so I've reduced my carbon footprint. Now there's a you know buzz word or area that people understand better, see is more meaningful. And so that's the, would be the thing to say, rather than just, hey, we bought local, yay, we bought local. The other thing, of course, sometimes is freshness, you know, and that they can articulate that. And in other instances, you know, saying that, uh, you know, less pesticides and all those other things too. But it's, just, it's really understanding what parts of those are meaningful. You know, uh, we, uh, it was really interesting. We uh, work with a, or we worked with a, a client in the snack food area who decided instead of using corn to use sorghum, okay? Which, what the hell's sorghum? You know, it's, uh, yeah. but it's, it's a very low water uh, produce, right? And so they really took the time to say, so this is why it's important. And literally over the course of a year, we could save, you know, 500,000 gallons of water, which means that three towns would have, you know, regular water supply. So that all then became a context. You go, oh, now I get it. And by the way, the product, Tastes the same as corn. So, right. I guess the consumer didn't say, "Oh, I'm saving 500,000 gallons, but it tastes like crap." You know, it still tasted okay, but it, it was a meaningful choice to to make that choice to reduce the carbon footprint, to reduce you know water usage. So, this is the that's what I love is in the process of actually talking to customers and going to the world. It's such a merger of many things, which is why, again, I, I really respect what you and the team are doing because you you bring this approach. Like this is what you you know you have to go to many areas versus like a founder, a creator, whatever it is. They have to be laser focused on just building a great product, bringing it to market needs that push of an outside voice and understanding of the behavioral psychology that makes this work, the economics of how to plant it and and position it. It all stems from that foundation. Like you said, when if it is from the roots of this foundation, then everything will always be born of the right tree. If it doesn't work, then you don't chop off the branch. You go back to the root and say like, was it, did it lose something along the way? Yeah. Are we missing the mark at this point? It's super easy for people to, you know, sort of get hung on a thing. And especially once brand lives a little while, 
and you bring in more outside voices. Because at first, like if you develop your first sales team, they're going to basically be, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated with this is what we do. This is why we're different. This is why we're better. This is why customers need us. You're going to tell the story this way and they do this and they're like, okay, cool. Well, now you have a hundred salespeople. You're hiring them at you know, five a week and then two leave because of attrition. Like you've got this continuous right. flow. If you don't have that root document, that sort of brand vision somewhere, they next thing you know, they'll be like, hey, we have got really great pistachios. Right. And I find that when I tell people that it's cheaper than the other ones, I send, I've closed a bunch of deals. And so they, that becomes like a playoff beard for them. They're like, I'm just going to keep saying it's cheaper. Right. And you're like, no, 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 you don't get it. None of those customers you just got are repeat customers. Right. Right. Because although you achieved your metric, the, the brands did not. And this again becomes like, you know, we talked before bringing them in is one thing, retaining them and getting recurring revenue is the really the goal of, of any company. And look, at it's not to diminish the importance of bringing them in the first time is critical because if you don't, you'll never know, right? Yeah. But again, often too much effort is spent only on that. And it was that, wow, we have 10,000 new customers, but our repeat business is 2%. That's a big, you know, warning signal, right? Because you you have either overpromised, underdelivered, blah blah blah. Something something didn't work. Um, versus, I get I'd rather story I'd rather hear is that we have two thousand new customers, but fifteen hundred of them returned. That's something to build off of. Okay. Well, we'd hope to get ten thousand, but we have an eighty percent return rate. Wow. Then we just need to get figure out what's working there and keep doing the same thing. Versus the other way around, we would have to say, wow. So we clearly can. We've got an attractive message or something or product or the way we're pushing in the market, but but uh, something's not working. <laughs> Let's go back and ask some of those people who didn't come back and say, why didn't you come back? Um, and and, and that's, you know, that'll help us get to, the, get to the right zone. And I'll, I'll ask a question. Let's just say uh, there's a change. Like there's, let's say the company is 10 years old. They want to, they're pivoting something. How do you re-infuse that now? Like how do you revisit brand because sometimes there's even just a business change that's occurred it, i mean uh, you know geico was famous of course they're like 15 you know minutes will save you 15 percent, whatever and at some point they realized like we need to stop anchoring on that and they've adjusted it they actually played it up because they chose a very consumer strong consumer you know lots of advertising lots of whatever and that was they had to shift their brand i worked for a company called raymond james and right. so that's why i can call their and one of the things we often said was, you know, 222 consecutive quarters of growth. Right. It was super valuable because it shows we're conservative, we're consistent, and they've maintained that. They continue to add to the number. But what if all of a sudden you miss one? You're like 200, you know, 222 consecutive quarters of growth. Then we missed two. Then we're back on track. That's right. <laughs> yeah, like so now at some point they need to say. Okay, we need a new some new messaging. <laughs> That's right. Or, or you say, you know, we have grown instead of consecutive quarters of growth, we have grown X amount in the last, uh, you know, ten years. You know, yeah. so which so you find a new way to cast that message. But I think to your point, 
And this is also sometimes a thing that is a mistake. People end up going, having a, uh, let's say, a style guide, a brand platform, whatever it is, and saying, oh my God, that is what we have to do always everywhere, even if we don't understand it or we don't believe it anymore. You have to recognize that sometimes things have to evolve. Doesn't mean you break rules there consistently, but if something has changed or isn't working anymore, then address it. You know, you learn things as you've been in the market, or like you said, there's a need to evolve. You know, but big brands, frankly, that are very successful that start to fade are terrified about making changes because they say, oh my God, we have a huge business that's so high risk and blah, blah, blah. And yet they're seeing their business, you know, steadily decline. And the reality is you got to change something. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean you change everything. Right. You need to understand what can't you change. But there are things you can change that will, again, reintroduce uh, the end user to your, to your 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 product or service that will uh, bring them back. Um, but you have to know how far to go. And by the way, sometimes it is drastic. But if it's drastic, then you're really saying, I may lose everything, but I don't have any other choice. Okay, right. uh, my business is dropping 30% a year and God, who cares? It's, it's gonna be gone in three years anyways. Or you say, you know what? I'm gonna have to do this a little incrementally because, uh, and see how much is enough. And also brand brand saving, you know, or brand recovering expeditions, right? This, I mean, I'll use a bit of a harsh example, but like BP, you know, they were able to not, obviously they have a, they have such a presence, it's hard to unseat them, but nothing is un, nothing is protected from going away. Right. And they were able to, despite some really, really obviously difficult and, you know, environmentally, you know, horrifying experiences that that were introduced, they they kind of just said, okay, let's go mea culpa on this and say like we've we've made mistakes and we understand that you need to learn to trust us again. And they they really walked to the market and went visually with it. They went to commercials, audio. They said we're going to blanket the world with this. You know, what was the other one? Tylenol, great example, right? right. When Tylenol had the problem with you know um, with you know pills that were were tainted and and somebody had, had had died as a result before we had the sealed tops right the FDA said whatever you do don't like just get the old ones off the shelf and just keep going like and they said we're going to get all of them we are going to start from scratch and they were actually advised to not do it. But in making that choice of saying full mea culpa, a massive thing has just changed in our industry and we are starting again. And it resulted in them really surviving as a brand versus if they'd sort of just tried to incrementally just tuck it away, they right. probably would not have had the success they have. So I'm curious again, you know, Randy, and when people come to you and say like, Randy, we've had a big change and we need to, we need to make sure this story comes through. So for starters is being honest. You, you can't, when you have a big issue that really is damaging to you for one way or the other, you can't just ignore it. So if you ignore it, people keep saying, well, what about that? What about that? So you, you have to, you know, and frankly, I always say honesty is the best policy. Be very transparent on it and explain what you did to rectify it. You know, it's, it's interesting. I actually think it's great when I see uh, companies doing customer service on social media. Think, oh my God, you're exposing people who are not happy. The reality is the real great part is how you solve their problems or listen to them, 
right? Yeah. Or address their interests. That is as, as another person who said, oh yeah, they had that problem, but wow, that company was responsive and they did the right thing. And you know, they were able to explain rather than just getting a negative review, right? Um, and so that I think it's just the way you address it that is really, really important. You know, and then in, in some instances it's so dramatic that you have to really say, we're walking away from this, but we're doing this instead. You know, years ago I worked, uh, um, uh, you remember the, the, the Enron flame out in Texas. So uh, yeah. we uh, were involved in rebranding one of their lead uh, legal firms. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but, oh my God, we frankly had no legal issue ultimately of that, but then they were directly associated with, with Enron. They went, oh my God, nobody wants to work with us anymore. And so what they had to do is really recast their brand. They didn't change their name, they uh, fortunately, because that had a legacy, but they did definitely recast what they did. In fact, one of the things they did is walked away from that sector for a while. They said, okay, that's a hot potato. So let's yeah. focus on other sectors. But they, what they decided not to do is, is hide from it. You know, obviously Enron no longer appeared on their client list. And they did rebrand to, to give a new fresh look to introduce themselves to new places, but um, they didn't say pretend that never happened, you know. Yeah, this is also, like you said, social media, and I hate to do this, you know, we only have a few minutes left, but this is an important piece where the brands then continues in an active voice. Right. And, you know, there's sometimes people chose the sort of like the campy, fun, edgy type of thing, right? You've got Wendy's social media having a run at Burger King, like, and it becomes cute, it's viral, but it also impacts the, like, if that if they suddenly switch, it's obvious, noticeable, and it takes away trust. Every once in a while, somebody will put out a, a just a promoted tweet because of something in their, say, a BP or an Enron or whatever, somebody that's, and you see, all you see is the reply count just like ticking up and you're like, oh, good golly, this is like, yeah. they're trying, but you're like, this is not the medium in which you want to bring this message out here. That's right. and Where does social yeah. media really affect the continuation of that visual brand? So I, again, the social media is obviously a really critical channel for any brand today. And what we talk about a lot is just using the right platform for the right kind of message. Uh, just using Twitter is a perfect example. That's a news platform. If you don't have something that's topical to newsworthy items, don't be tweeting. Nobody cares that you're introducing a new flavor of, you know, granola bar on yeah. Twitter. Just doesn't matter. You know, it's not the place that they're looking for that information. They might be looking for that on Instagram. Yeah, because Instagram is interest-based, right? Uh, Pinterest, borrowed interest and interest-based, okay? Facebook community, stories, connection with people, right? So, and actually has a little broader mantle then as well. If you're looking for something that's very business to business, yes, LinkedIn is absolutely a right place to do that. Uh, same thing, LinkedIn probably may not be the right place to put a big emotional story you know, about something that, you know, no one in the business mindset is going to care about. So um, it's really understanding where and how to do it. Uh, the other the reality is, too, and I think people have known this for a while, is that you can't just, like, put things out on social media and expect that you're going to build an audience. Because, oh, it's going to get viral. 
Yeah, that happens. That's not science completely. That's a lot of chance and winning the lottery and having the right place at the right time. So promoted, um, you know, posts, et cetera, are the reality. You got to do it. You got to do it. Yeah. And then you have to experiment with it. All the social platforms today actually have pretty sophisticated engines to allow you to do that um, in a pretty economical way. But we tell that to clients a lot. That is a, definitely is a check the box, <clears throat> but don't get all sad because you've got 200 followers you know, on Instagram after three months because all you did is put it out there. Because yes, 200 people happen to find you or they're all your friends and family are following you. But um, <laughs> you know, if you really want to get it further, you, you got you to promote it. But it is as viable of a place as any other digital media place to do it. So you know, uh, a, somebody with a good digital plan definitely does it not only social media, but social media certainly is a critical component to it. Yeah, this is uh, as a holistic approach. And I think that's what people lose sight of. It's like they choose one thing and and also where you make sure you can be consistent in your usage of any platform, right? You, if you come up with a fantastic, if you pay all this money for a visual ad and then you fire it up and you use your impressions and then you stop using it, that's that's a, a a failure in your understanding of what the platform is meant to do and how you get an ROI from this platform. Even though it's a beautiful image, a beautiful right. video you created, if you just hammered it into the ecosystem, it's timing, right? Like right. A, an amazing movie comes out on a Friday and it goes, does 14 million. And then it, it came out three weeks later, the same movie could get 4 million. Why? because Harry Potter came out the same day. That's right. So you're, it's timing placements, <clears throat> but what I really want to bring us back to is it's about taking the foundation of your company, your vision, your customer story, and making sure that it's from the roots of that. And for folks that want to make sure that they can do this right, Randy, what's the best way if they want to contact you and the team at Visual Brand? So our website is thevisualbrand.com, and I am Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, at thevisualbrand.com. Excellent. Randy, this is really good. I, I, there's so much more I could tap into. We talk about, we could talk about influencers and other things. I'd love to have you back and go into some of those areas because I know it's a, it's a keen interest to a lot of folks these days of where is the right place to use some of these things. And I know you've, you've done a lot of work in this, so, but I didn't want to truncate it to a two minute hunk of our discussion. So, but okay. it's, it's been really great. Thank you very much for spending the time. Thank you, Eric. I've enjoyed it thoroughly.